Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the next episode of the Muslim Bitcoiner podcast. Today, I have a special guest. I have Dr. Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, who is an associate professor at Zaytuna College. And today, we'll mainly be talking about this book, Islam and Economics, a Primer on Markets and Morality and Justice. It was written by Dr. Ali Salman, but our, our guest here has actually written an extensive foreword that we'll also be talking about as well. So, Dr. Ali, if you if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and also maybe tell us about what got you into Islamic economics? All right, Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, really appreciate, mashallah, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you be with you today on your podcast. As you've already highlighted, I'm an associate professor in Islamic law and the prophetic tradition at Zaytun College. I teach courses which range from the prophetic tradition, what we call Roman Hadith, Usul al-Fiqh, the foundation of Islamic jurisprudence, and many of the upper tier law courses, some related to what we have family law, inheritance law, commercial law. And my educational background, um, I guess you would say in my experience, my life experience, both have had something to do with my own personal interest in, of course, economics in general, Islamic economics more particular. Now, of course, I wanted to be clear that I'm not an economist, but I, I have studied and taught a number of courses which are connected to matters of wealth, right? So if I were to go back to my youth, and let's say, for instance, I, I grew up in a largely um, convert community, in Philadelphia. And I would say that for the first two decades of my life, the main issues that the community focused on were things that are connected to ritual things, you know, of course, the Salat itself, the Hara, the outward appearance. And and it, at that time, and during those years, it seemed that there were very few people in the community who had an interest in studying things which are a bit more, you know, obtuse or obscure such as zakat, for instance, you know. So I had the tendency, I had the inclination generally towards things that were a bit abstract, at least for my own level of education, right? So I started to look into zakat. And then, of course, eventually I would go overseas to study in Morocco in 1997 um, at the the College of Sharia connected to Qarawiyin University. And... A number of the courses that I took at the university also reinforce the importance of wealth, right? So, mm-hmm. for instance, of course, in Fiqh al-Hadith, the jurisprudence of Hadith literature, we all studied the Hadith related to zakat. As a matter of fact, had an obligation to memorize the longer hadith, which spell out all of the different, we call the ansiba, the sort of the threshold, payout thresholds with respect to camels and cows and sheep and goat, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so fiqh hadith, but also I studied one of my courses was fiqh al-wathaiq, which can translate as contract law. Mm-hmm. Another course that I studied, I studied Mirath, which was Islamic inheritance law. Uh, but in my very first year, a particular course that I took was called Tisada Siyasi, which is political economy, which was taught by an important, well, at least important to me, an important Moroccan economist who was also traditionally trained in Islamic law and also was a Sufi by the name of Sheikh Ahmed Lishan al-Haq. As a matter of fact, uh, I was glad that you asked me to come on today because it went me, it allowed me to go back into my sort of library I picked out as <laughs> the book my uh, my yeah. book utilized for our class, you know, and so so really, you know, it was really refreshing to get you know uh, to read over some of the things and see all the notes that I put in my book from those from that very first year of study. But also studying at the university, I, I got what I would consider to be a very well-rounded overview of Islamic law because we're well, not just the Islamic law, but law in general. In that the college, we not only studied Islamic issues, but we also, we, we delved into what we call the Moroccan statute law, right? So I, I had a course called right, which is commercial law, right, which is mm-hmm. pertaining to secular law, civil law, right? So which is also, it deals a lot with matters pertaining to wealth, right, and the relationship between people and the relationships established 
between people because of matters of wealth, you know, so that, you know, sort of a general overall sort of reason why I developed sort of an interest in this particular area. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So so it sounds like you've kind of, you know, picked, picked a lot of pieces from Islamic economics from the, from your different courses and different experiences. You know, I've also kind of have been going, just scratching the surface of, you know, Islamic economics. And of course, you know, I'm, have not taken any course or anything, but I do like to read about it. And it's, it is very, it is a very fascinating field, and I'm just surprised at like the just the the extensive knowledge that a lot of these scholars contribute to this field. And you know, I was I was also intrigued when I read your foreword. You you said some things that I was like I have thought about, but I didn't really think about extensively. And I, I kind of wanted you to maybe I guess expand on it a little bit. So one of the things you mentioned in your foreword, you talk about this idea that maybe there isn't so much an Islamic currency or an is, or Islamic finance or Islamic economics. And, you know, maybe there's just only the fields of, you know, currency or finance or economics. Could you, could you expand on that some more? Like, what do, you, what do you mean that there may not be an Islamic currency or Islamic finance? Well, I mean, what we need to understand is that uh, economics as an independent independent science itself is relatively new in human history. You know, it's perhaps might not even go back more than about 200 years, right? You know, but originally economics was just simply a branch of moral philosophy in the sort of the old Greek and medieval European institutions. It was just a branch of that. In other words, you know, so you're studying economics, it's just like you study politics, you know, just a, it's like morality, it's public morality, right? So, so, so Islamic economics as an independent science, it developed in the 20th century. You know, that, that term itself was assigned to it by Muslim writers and Muslim, you know, authors, writers, and some of them, some, some classical training as well. And probably the, the most influential of all of those people, those scholars, was Abu Ahlad Maududi from Pakistan. May Allah have mercy in him. So many people have been influenced by his ideas. And of course, there are other writers, too. There are his students and there are other people who are writing as well about this type of thing. Right? And, and so so Muslims and Muslims were actually pushing out, I guess you say, the European colonizers, you know, and by the course going towards the mid-20th century. As Muslims did that, there was a, a an effort, a I guess you say, sort of universal effort to, to show that Islam was superior to the West, right? And so often what that meant was to say that, okay, well, whatever the West claimed unique to them, then we already had the same thing, right? Therefore, you know, Muslims should be looking at the Muslim version of those particular sciences here. So if it's like democracy, for instance, there were, mm-hmm. so you have scholars or certain people writing saying that, well, Islam had democracy before before the West had it, you know, and they'll say, okay, there's the, the constitution of Medina, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that, well, the document that was written in Medina wasn't a constitution, right? You know, but, you know, Muslims would sort of, they would, you know, allude to that, this idea, okay, well, we already have something like that. So we don't need to look outside, outside of ourselves. And so, so fundamentally, this idea of economics, you know, develops or Islamic economics develops, just like we talk about today's Islamic finance as well. In other words, my point from that is to say that economics and finance are two naturally occurring, occurring social phenomena, right? You know, in other words, human beings, right? who come together and live together, they eventually develop economic systems. They develop financial options, right? You know, and monetary systems to exchange with one another, right? It happens naturally, right? And there's no need for Muslims to say, okay, well, this is the Islamic version of it, you know? And then of course, I think it's important to even talk about what does that mean to say this something is an Islamic version of the thing? Mm-hmm. Are we saying that that the Prophet actually gave some clear direction on the obligation to develop or introduce something new, which didn't exist prior to that? Or are we simply saying that because this particular order was normative in Muslim lands, and Muslims themselves regularly interacted and they utilized the mechanisms and the tools within that order that it becomes Islamic simply because it was normal among Muslims, right? Mm. And that's extremely important for us to, to make that distinction. And so, 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 so basically, the idea is not to say that there's no value in what has been 
traditionally called, we can say traditionally now because it's been around, I guess, 50 years or more now, right. uh, what's been called Islamic economics, not to say there's no value in it, in the study of it, but it's to understand that it is new. And, and also, we may be sometimes doing ourselves more harm than good when we think about it in that particular fashion, because it gives the impression that unless something originates among the Muslims, then it can't be valid, or it has to be validated simply because it originates among, among non-Muslims. But we have to keep in mind that most of the Muslims on the planet, the most of the Muslim territories or the Muslim majority countries were not Muslim majority countries for most of Islamic history. Right? It became that way, right? And which means that the local cultures had an effect on the expression of Islam in those particular centers. And and that is in Islam itself is not a uh, I guess you'd say a an introverted uh, civilization. In other words, that mm-hmm. that Muslims for centuries have never felt that it was a problem for us to borrow right or syncretize right culture right from other civilizations. Right. Yeah. So that's really what I guess you're saying. I'm sort of fighting against is this that particular attitude. I think it's a very harmful mindset to think that just because it does not originate here then it has to be bad or it has to be wrong right i also kind of echo that sentiment as well i mean you know it's it's if you think about economics as kind of like the study of you know just like 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 i like to think of it because you know i've been reading a lot about austrian economics and you know the way they approach the economic study is that you know they approach it in in studying the actions of humans at the individual level level rather than at the aggregate and i also kind of agree with that in that you know just because we have this new field of study which you know economics is is a is a is a very new study compared to other disciplines and there's nothing wrong with coming up with your own with your own reasonings from those studies, as long as it doesn't like contradict anything that's, you know, blatantly obvious within within Islam. And I think, you know, a lot of I see a lot of this people, Muslims that study economics that kind of, you know, they, they get kind of this envy or whatever, like, oh, there's this other, you know, field of economics, we need to develop our own, like from scratch. Yeah. And, you know, I also kind of agree with that. So I was kind of, you know, it made me kind of think when I when I read that in your foreword, Actually, along the same lines, you know, in that in the same book, in the very last, I think it's the last two pages, where Doctor mm-hmm. Adi Salman talks about uh, the the appendix is called Modudi Revisited, and mm-hmm. uh, is is very fascinating because he alludes to the fact that, you know, it could be because you know, like you said, Islamic economics is a very new field of study, but around that time when that study was being developed, it was around that time when you know there were there were other economic philosophies being developed, especially that of John Maynard Keynes. And when I'm reading Islamic economics, I'm seeing a lot of the same concepts that they espouse in, you know, like, like, like wealth circulation, for example, as a, as a way to create, like, uh, as a way society creates wealth, you know, so I guess stepping back, the idea is that, you know, the way Islamic societies should develop wealth or, or create wealth is by, circulating it and they'll like you know mention zakat or whatever and this creates wealth but if you think about it that's actually a very keynesian idea i like to call it because you know if you're just transacting a lot that's not creating wealth and you know so obviously like dr adi sunman didn't go too deep into it he just said he kind of alluded to that maybe modudi and company have been influenced by by john john maynard Keynes and other other economists during that time do you think that's 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 kind of the current state of islamic economics is that it was just kind of I guess even in the attempt to make its own discipline, it kind of borrowed a bunch of ideas and they, you know, didn't bother really thinking it through when they were doing that. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, that's usually the case when you're trying to undermine the orthodoxy, right? You know, it can be an orthodoxy, in this case, we're talking economic orthodoxy and replace it with something, a new one, right? And same thing happens in theology, right? So for instance, the Maltesio, at one time in Islamic history, that they, you know, they projected themselves as the orthodox orthodox Muslims, right? You know that you know they had power uh, and they could claim orthodoxy at the time. And the scholars who actually they they undermined or sort of like they took the wind out of the sails of the Montezida that they had the first study the beliefs of the Montezida and also studied the foundations of the beliefs among the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so while they were able to dethrone the Montezida, they themselves still, they clung to many of the same ideas 
that the Mortezida had, you know, and I do think that a similar thing happened. It happens all the time. Anytime you find one group of people, one population attempting to present itself as a legitimate replacement for another, they have to say first and foremost to show that, okay, well, I actually understand the current system, you know, and these are the alterations which are necessary in order for it to be more just, right? Um, uh, you can you can think about that like Imam Ghazali too, for instance, Imam Ghazali, he studied the philosophers, he studied all their works that were available to him, and he wrote his book, Maqasid al-Falasifa, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very apparent that Imam Ghazali was affected, influenced by, you know, the study of those those people, right? You know, you can see it is his own personal convictions on certain points. So so that it's just, there's no way around it to, to some extent, you know, you're always going to be influenced by, at least even if it's a minimal influence, you're going to be influenced by other people that you study. And particularly if you somewhat have an antagonistic outlook about those people and their particular goals. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was kind of uh, surprised to, uh, to re- read about that because I did kind of have like a feeling that, you know, the current state of Islamic economics was kind of influenced a lot by like the prevailing economic thought during the time as as it was coming to be developed in the 50s 60s and 70s so that that was that was definitely kind of an interesting point in the book and you know this isn't to say that you know in islam their economics isn't addressed there there is islam does have a lot to say about economics and <laughs> i i love that like in the book dr ali salman spent a lot of the book talking about the issue of price fixing and, you know, I feel like that's something that often gets overlooked. And there's like a lot of Muslims that don't understand, I guess, you know, the implications of that hadith, like the hadith on price fixing, which I'll read here. I find that there's just so much wisdom in this hadith that I just feel like a lot of Islamic economists don't really like. They kind of have this aversion for this hadith, but I'll go ahead and read it for our listeners here. Mm-hmm. So the should probably have the full hadith, but essentially it's this. The people said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, the prices are exorbitant, so regulate the prices for us. So the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, said, Verily, Allah is the price regulator, the constrictor, the expander, and the provider. And verily, I hope to meet Allah, while none of you demands from me the removal of an injustice in blood or in wealth. Uh, and this was narrated in Tirmidhi. So, you know, that, that when, when I first read that, I didn't really understand the actual like implications or the wisdom in that hadith. But like when you actually study economics, there's so much economic teaching just jam-packed in that one hadith about price fixing. And I was surprised when I was reading the book that not all the scholars and all the madahib agree on actual like uh, whether price fixing should be completely abolished or not, or whether we should allow government to price fix in certain instances. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think... Um... It's always first and foremost important to understand the default is right. So, and, and the default is set by Allah and His Messenger. So, if the Prophet Sallallahu said that Allah is the one who sets prices, meaning that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, He Himself, He sort of inspires the human being, right, to to buy and to sell, and and then agree upon a favorable price, right, rather than a government or an outsider. The sultan actually decided, okay, this is what a good price is for all these things. That is the default, right? You know, that is the, the teaching, the unequivocal uh, teaching of Islam, right? That's the normative teaching of Islam. Now, when scholars start to say, okay, well, well, there may be situations where a governor may may be able to restrict or set the price. Now, when they talk that way, they they mean that as an exception, right? Mm-hmm. That is, there's something happening in society that the situation is so dire that the only thing that will produce, I guess you can say, the, the the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people is for the governor to step in and say, hey, well, we need, you know, these these can't be, you can't charge more than this particular price for this particular item, right? You know? And and this is self as well established. It goes way back. Omar Abu Khattab is probably the most well known among the Sahaba, well in particular the Khulafa Rashidin for doing things as a governor, which give the impression that, well, this is undermining the text, right? You know, Mm -hmm. but because he understood something else beyond the text and from the Sunnah of the Prophet, they don't, they're not critical of Omar for doing that, you know? So, so for instance, with respect to, okay, he decided he's not going to cut off people's hands, you know, on the the time there was, there was a famine, right? Or that he decided that he wasn't going to give the Mu'allafa Qulubuhum, 
those people whose hearts shall be to be reconciled to Islam any share in the zakat anymore. It's saying to them, oh, that's when we were weak, right? And that's why we gave it to you, right? So those are just a couple examples of that, you know, but be, taking inspiration from things like that or what he did with Khaybar, or I'm sorry, what he did with regard to the lands that had been opened up and extracting Kharaj from them rather than giving them over to individual fighters, right, who actually, you know, open up those lands and say, well, no, no, what are we going to do about the widows and the, the orphans in the future, you know, that, and so he left those lands in control of the people who were conquered and just simply extracted tribute from them for the benefit of the Muslims, right, and so, so those type of decisions um, by the Sopan are generally looked upon as legitimate, but these are exceptional cases, right, right. those particular opinions can't undermine or invalidate the actual words of the Messenger, because in this situation, one can argue that, well, if the Prophet believed that it was appropriate uh, to set prices, then he would have done so, right? After being asked to do so. Right. Asked, no, 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 I, I refuse to do so. Okay, that's fundamentally what he says in this hadith. And we know that that there's a particular detriment. In other words, Islam gives consideration not only to the customer, the consumer, but also to the merchant. So one can say, okay, well, this actually benefits the customer to have prices that are set and benefit them, right? But but what about the, the merchant, right? You know, you go into business because you want to, you know, live well, or you want to uh, flourish, you know, and you have a right to do so through your efforts. And, you know, and so you say, well, I'm, this is what I want to charge for this particular commodity. And if you're okay with that particular price, then you can have it. But if you're not okay with it, then you can't have it. You know, we'll wait for someone else who can afford it to actually pay for it. Right? So that in itself, yeah. of course, is an example of, of one of the type of hadith which validates the free market, I guess you would say. Right. Um, right so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, there's a lot of very key economic concept that can be derived from that, I think. And, you know, that's, that's definitely one of my, one of my, favorite hadith actually like when when i first read about it i didn't quite understand it but i'm finding a lot of wisdom coming from that hadith especially like you've talked about just because you know it may seem from the outset that like okay if we could just fix the price of this commodity then you know it'll solve the issue of scarcity or supply or demand and you find out that like actually most of the time pretty much it, it actually makes the problem worse so mm-hmm. another question i wanted to ask you in your forward you talked about the I guess the issue of both capitalism and socialism. So like when when we try to think of what the economic where the Islamic economic system is do can is it correct to say that Islam favors more of a capitalistic mode of production or a socialistic mode of production or is Islamic economics something that's like outside of these systems how 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 would you explain that to somebody? In one sense you could say that if the only options you have available and the only choice you have are either uh, socialism or capitalism as analogs for what is more in favor of the Islamic teachings, then I would say that the Islamic law is much more capitalistic than it is socialistic. But it does combine elements of both. So in that sense, I don't like the idea to say that, okay, well, Islamic law, Islamic economic system or Islamic economics is capitalistic nor is it socialistic. I like, you know, I think that that's more accurate to say that it's neither, but also both, but more so, but there are more elements of capitalism in our system than of socialism. Because, I mean, socialism and many of its assumptions and its goals, well, both of the systems are problematic because both of them are concerned with material outcomes, right? And this is one thing I try to highlight in my, in my, my forward as well, is that that if we, if we when we talk about the Islamic economics or an Islamic economy, we're not we're talking about a religious economy, right? In the sense that that Islam or a deen, though even the word deen in the Arabic language and as used by the Prophet Muhammad, in my understanding, in my opinion, is inclusive. It's, it's not limited to just simply devotional acts or just personal beliefs. Deen is about the private and public spheres as well, right? It's both of those things, right? You know, so so and I guess Aristotle would probably agree with this because because he he wrote his ethics and he wrote his politics. And in other words, he felt that in this politics were just simply 
a public form of individual ethics. You just, you know, the public square, you know, this is the way this will look in the public, in the public square. It just, it's just another form of, of ethics. And, and I think that in the pre-modern period, most religions in the world actually operated this way. They, they didn't see themselves as, okay, well, there's a, there's a separation between the secular and the sacred. You know, this idea that, oh, you keep your religion at home and then, you know, your politics somewhere else, right? And, uh, but rather, Dean and Dunya, they, they were together, right, for most, uh, most religions. And as a matter of fact, Karen Armstrong, she has an article um, in the, I think it was in The Guardian, she wrote some years ago, called The Myth of Religious Tolerance, or Religious Intolerance, I think it was. And so in that, she said that the only religion actually qualifies as a religion in the secular sense is Protestant Christianity, right? You know, gives yeah. Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to, and again, to God what belongs to God. But for us, no, that uh, our economy is, 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 is a religion economy. And it takes into consideration uh, the desire to see society better, to see goodwill, right, uh, proliferating in society. And, and and for that reason, we can't just simply say, okay, well, this is a generic system, and whoever, whatever moral order or philosophy that you live by, right, you can still benefit from that system. And capitalism, for instance, or social, it's not they're not meant to be, or say capitalism, for instance, it's not to be religious or preferring one particular religion over another. You know, for us to say, no, 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 that. It has religion has something to say when it comes to economics as well, you know. So that's why certain things are haram. Certain things wouldn't be lawful. You could prostitution wouldn't be illegal. You understand? You like right. in the valley, you know, where people they extracting taxes for prostitutes, and you know, in other places they're decriminalizing and decriminalizing and things like that. You know, so 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 under capitalism, you can sell wine. You can and all these other things we know that are very problematic. And with socialism, on the other hand, with Marxism. They want to abolish religion, right? And so yeah, it's yeah. it's like you know, how can you say Islam is Marxist or or a socialist or say capitalist from that regard? You know, when both of them are really concerned with material outcomes and believe that material fortune is ultimately is what, what's going to make people happy. Right. Exactly. And I think this is you know this this highlights the like I guess the central problem of that discussion is that you know in Islam we we are slaves of Allah we serve Allah you know at at the end we're not wealth doesn't really come from the material world it comes from the good deeds that we do in this world and you know it's it's, it's these economic systems don't really take that into a, into account and as a muslim that should be like at the heart of it no matter what i guess system that you adopt you have to kind of have that mentality at the, at the outset mm -hmm. and yeah, so actually, I wanted to read a passage that, that you wrote. I think that just like sums it up really well. Um, For whatever merits and promise people may see in socialist policies born of capitalistic failures, it seems clear that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, promoted private property, its protection, free enterprise, and free markets alongside regulatory procedures for circumventing fraud and the sale of harmful and unlawful goods. And honestly, what I... When I highlighted that that sentence, I was like, wow, that's actually a really good way of summarizing what like Islamic economics tries to promote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you said, it's yeah, you have that element where we are serving Allah, not so much we're we're trying to attain material wealth because the material wealth is just a means to serve Allah. There's nothing wrong with accumulating capital capital or saving wealth, but you know, we Islam has systems set up in pace in place that allows you to purify that and allows you to serve Allah. I mean, all of these things are just meant to be tools so that, inshallah, they could help us serve Allah better. And I guess, I guess on, on that, on that kind of same notes, uh, I also wanted to talk about the issue of zakat. So what do you, what is, what is your take on the purpose of zakat? I mean, I know like the ultimate true purpose of zakat is, you know, like I said, we do it to serve Allah because it is like one of the pillars of Islam. But a lot of, I see a lot of Islamic economists you know, from the some of the books that I've read, they they talk about zakat as a way to completely eradicate poverty, and that's why that's like the wisdom behind zakat. What do you, what mm -hmm. do you think is the purpose of zakat? How would you explain that to a Muslim? Well, I mean, um, there, I think there are a few different reasons that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has made zakat compulsory. And of course, I'm, one of the things He mentions in the Quran is that zakat is meant to purify the individual. And to make us grow closer, or to just grow in general, you know, right? That you know, to take from their wells a charity by which they're able to be purified and to grow, right? So, 
So in other words, so one one course is definitely a devotional issue to begin with, first and foremost, yeah. that to remove the attachment from worldly goods, right, from our hearts, because ultimately we want to leave this world. But I believe another reason is to alleviate, not to remove or eradicate poverty, but to alleviate poverty, right? So for instance, you find one particular Maliki author, Abdul Wahid ibn Ashur, is a poet, he has his didactic poem, when he talks about Zakat al-Fitr, and he mentions that, you know, that one should take the Zakat or give it from right? So in other words, that one should take the zakat from the staple of the people, in order to, to enrich a, a poor Muslim for that day, right? And so if it's for the day, that sounds to me like it's not for a permanent reason, not, not, to, not to eradicate anything at all. In other words, it's to alleviate rather to alleviate rather than to eradicate poverty, especially considering the fact that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the dunya as darul bada, right? Not darul qara, right? Now, this is the bold of tribulation, right? That we have in, in this in this world, people are rich, poor, people are strong, people are weak. Yeah, that we have a portion out to you, your livelihood or your sustenance in this world, and we have elevated some of you above others so that some will place others in their service. Right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he has decided that some people will have more and some people have less. That is just his qadr, that he gives some greater risk to some people than he gives to others. And so the dunya is the dunya. It is a place where we have joy and pain, sunshine and rain. Right? And then we have you know, Jahannam, we have Jannah, right? You know, and that, so the world, this dunya, it can't be Jannah and can't be Jahannam either, right? You know, so so to try to create or transform the dunya, dunya into Jannah itself is fundamentally a Marxist socialist goal, right? You know, and and, and that that's one of the another points of departure between Islam and socialism is that, and I've actually, unfortunately, I've seen some of my colleagues, some of my, my peers at times give khutbah, and I hear them say things like, you know, that Islam has is, is been sent here to create Jannah on earth, heaven on earth. They say, no, it is not. <laughs> that, there's no, you can find no hadith that says that. You can't find any verse in Quran that says that. That rather, this is the place, sabr and shukr, right? You know, that this is, you know, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expects from us to be grateful for the, the ni'am, for the blessings and favors he allots to us. And, and to be sober, right? To be patient and endure the tribulations that come in this world. You know, this is just this, the nature of this world, right? So 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 zakat for me is a fulfillment, a fulfillment of an obligation. It is meant to alleviate, not to eradicate poverty, but also it is it is a a a source of a closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a something that helps to detach the heart. From material goods, right? That we should be able to 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 part ways with portions of our wealth in this life, you know, to the benefit of people who don't have as much as we do. Yeah, I love how how you also highlighted that in your forward. I mean, you know, there's there's not, you know, the, the Quran and you know t- talks about the world being like or people, some people being endowed with a lot and other people not not having a lot. And you know that's just like an inherent inequality that we have in in the dunya. That's just part of our test. And yeah. you know to say that zakat tries to I guess tries to make everybody equal is kind of missing the true purpose of zakat. I mean, like I said, ultimately we're doing you know the we follow the five pillars of Islam because you know we want to we get closer to Allah. And zakat is a way to purify your wealth. And you know one one of the one of the things I you know, why I think, you know, Islam favors more of a capitalistic mode of production is because, you know, if, just if you think about it, if you socialize everything where people are not allowed to accumulate capital, which is what like the heart of capitalism is, if you can't accumulate capital, accumulate wealth, then you have nothing to pay zakat on. So like, right. you know, actually being able to save and being able to accumulate capital gives you an opportunity to actually purify your wealth. And this this could be a means to, to get closer to Allah. Now, obviously, you shouldn't this should not be the main goal is to attain as much wealth in this world as possible. But, you know, your, the wealth is is definitely a bounty that Allah gives us so that we can, you know, we have a chance to purify our wealth and have a chance to get closer to him. So right. I, let, me, let me ask this for you. I know you're probably ready to come to this question, but another thing to consider is that 
for those who argue that, well, zakat is, um, or the, the purpose of zakat is to eradicate poverty from the world, that that can only happen if you decide to tax every single person in society, whether they have savings or not, right? right? And so fundamentally, it's like, well, okay, I actually spoken to like one particular Muslim economist, spoken to him one time, and he was claiming that zakat is really nothing more than a wealth tax. And I said, no, it's not, <laughs> right? That uh, I don't, zakat is not a wealth tax. Because when you start talking about the wealth tax, you're talking about extracting from the, not from the, from the surplus, but from the income of every individual who exists on the planet. And many of those people actually may be eligible for zakat. Right. And so, but zakat, you, can, you don't take zakat from people's income. You take it from their surplus after a year has passed, passed by, right? And, and, and no person is, has an obligation to save their money. You see, you know, so, so, so that's the thing is also a blessing of Islam is that, well, I have all this money, but I can, if 10 months go by before, you know, 11 and 12, the 12 months, I'm going to have to pay my zakat on it. If I decide to give away all my wealth in month number 10, I'm, I'm not simple in doing so, right? Yeah. And the government can't force me to hold on to it so they, they can extract taxes from or extract zakat from it, you know, but the only way you can actually have an actual viable society which fundamentally cater to every single person's needs or, or at least at least all the needs of the poor, then you would have to tax so many people, right, you know, for, out of their income, not from their surplus, right? And at the start of years, they're basically, oh, you get paid 100000 this year? Oh, God, we're going to just take, you know, we, well, I haven't made any money yet. I haven't, <laughs> you know, but you already decided to tax me uh, beforehand, but, it's, but Islam is more merciful than that. And basically... Uh, gives individual an opportunity to even spend the money if they want and go at the end of the year if you have a surplus you know now you have to pay the account on it at that yeah. point so right. and it doesn't have to go to the government see that's the yeah. other part too is that you, when you treat zakat as a tax that the government can just simply take from every person right and of course there's you know of course historically there has been certain you know some validity to that historically but but not in the way that people think about it nowadays you know but, but it's, it's is that you know that the government can't just simply you know arbitrarily decide that hey well we, we're going to we're going to extract it from you prior to you actually having any savings you know as a matter of fact we're going to add on top of that we're going to take the additional money from you on top of your zakat you know because we feel that the government or the the society needs it even though the government is very uh, the, the government is its own form of spendthrift you know is actually mm -hmm. irresponsible spender that we've seen. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think uh, I read in Modudi's First Principles of Islamic Economics, and even he talks about zakats, like specifically, like not being a, a wealth tax, like he, he considers right. it as an act of, uh, he calls it financial worship. And I, I, mm -hmm. I love that term. And that's, that's really, that's what zakats is there for. It's not there for some entity like the government to, you know, forcibly take it from you. That is, it's a pillar of Islam. You like you, this is something that you're supposed to do and calculate it on your surplus and you give it away to people that are in need and you've you're fulfilling a, a pillar of islam so i, I right. really like i really like the way you guys frame zakat and i didn't think about that before i always just as you know if someone asked me what zakat was i was like yes it's just a wealth tax but i, I think that's a very wrong way to think about it so yeah that's that's i love i love reading about that in the in the book one one other topic I also wanted to talk to you about in this book, I was actually really surprised by the so so doc, Dr. Ali Salman talks about the different viewpoints in how people treat riba in the current financial system. So you've seen me on Twitter, and also I've seen you on Twitter like rant rant about the current financial system and how riba is completely ingrained in it. But it turns out actually that not all scholars see it that way. So like you know you might. You know, so there there are some scholars that don't know how banking works, and they they give they give these ridiculous opinions that you know may Allah bless them, but like they don't really understand actually how banking works. But even when they do understand how banking works and how interest is charged in in those certain financial transactions, a lot of the scholars don't consider it as riba, uh, you know, because you're not you're not actually uh, that that charging interest on financial service is different from charging interest on lending and therefore, you know, like interest in banking is totally okay. Or like certain scholars, there was one, this, the Sheikh Mohammed Sayyid Tantawi who permitted mm -hmm. earning fixed profits on banking deposits. Where, where do you stand on that? Do you, do you think these, mm -hmm. these, these opinions are legitimate? Well, I'll say this much. I mean, the issue of riba is much more complicated than typically understood. 
And the reason for its complications are, I mean, they're manifold, right? First and foremost, um, we're dealing with a different type of economic system and currency system than existed in the past, right? So for instance, during the time of the Prophet people transacted with gold, silver, bronze, copper sort of pieces and things like that. Of course, there was a barter exchange as well. But, you know, in terms of currency, it was gold and silver, uh, the main, right? And silver is more common than, than gold, right? Because it's smaller units of, of the larger currency. So, so, so basically, when the Prophet spoke about Reba, that he listed six different goods, right? Which were subject to the rules of Reba. In other words, if you exchange these goods and in the wrong way, then you're guilty of Reba. And those particular goods were gold, silver, salt, dates, wheat, and barley. Mm-hmm. So, so there are multiple hadiths where the Prophet repeats all six of these, which led the ulama to say that, okay, that, that the Prophet didn't simply mention these as examples, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, okay, well, these definitely uh, have specific rules with respect to the exchange. Now, while they acknowledge that 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 this wasn't simply just examples, right? But they also understood, most of them understood that that they were they were not examples in the sense that the prophet was simply, you know, doing some type of figurative, you know, language or metaphor, right? But they were examples in the sense that they work as type of analogs for other types of goods which may fall in the same category. Now the literalist school, the Vahidis, took a different position on that because they didn't believe in legal analogy. So their position is that that there's no rebound on anything other than these six goods. Yeah. So if you were a literalist living in today's world, you got nothing to worry about. You got nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about other than what's exchanged when those particular goods are exchanged with one another. Mm. On the other hand, the four schools of the Sunni schools, and of course the Shia as well, uh, that they they took those particular goods as listed. Okay, these are these are analogs or archetypes for other things. But then they explain, but they but then they differed about okay, why? Why, for instance, is Reba uh, uh why is Reba applicable to, for instance, to the exchange of gold and silver, as opposed to the other four things, which are all food, food goods, right? Wheat, barley, salt, and dates, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, the Hanafis and the Hanbalis would say, okay, well, the Prophet said that Reba applies to gold and silver because these are things that are typically weighed. So if they so they're weighed. Therefore, so anything else which is weighed also can be classified under the rubrics of, of Reba. Right? Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the full food goods, these are things that are typically measured by volume. Mm-hmm. So these are the Hanafis and the and the, the Hanbalis. Right? The Shafiris and the Malikis, they agree when it came to the gold and silver. So their position was that, no, it's not because they're weighed, it's because these are the foundation of appraisal for all other goods, right? So in other words, they are the media of exchange, the main media exchange, the main sources of the value, the ways of evaluating the prices of other things. So Mamadic and Sheffi agreed upon that with regards to gold and silver. So anything else that would replace those two items in that particular meaning take the same ruling. But when it came to the other four four four, four goods, they differed about it. You know, I don't want to go too much detail into it, but 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 basically here, so we have the starting point. We start six goods. And then, okay, well, how do we make an analogy with with other things that are similar to that? They differ about okay, what makes them Reba we are not, right? Mm-hmm. But now we're dealing with a situation where we have not only banks that are taking people's money and lending that money out to other people to increase their own money, right? banks that are creating money out of thin air, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have on top of that, most of the transactions are not even uh, with physical cash, mm-hmm. but they're digitized. The vast majority of money, about 96%, and you think of like dollars, are digital, is digital money already. Right? So it's only about 4% of cash in, 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 in circulation. Right? Mm-hmm. And in order to make the rules of rebuy apply to cash, again, you have to decide, okay, whose fuck am I going to base that on? <laughs> Based on the, the Hanafi, or the Shafri in Malik, you understand? So yeah. who's trick am I going to base that on? Because, because again, if I take the body position, there's no rebound on dollars, whether digital or, or printed, right? But, but they also scholars, and it's a minority of contemporary scholars, 
who take the view that riba and zakat are only due on gold and silver. They're not due on other types of currencies. Right? Again, they're very almost literalist as well. That's a minority. The vast majority of them say, no, the riba applies even to, we call it the orak and sort of the paper money, we would say. Paper money and also and the digital form version of it. Right. So, so now we come to banking. Then it's like, okay, well, what happens in banking? Individual comes to the bank, deposits their money there. Most people's intention is to simply protect their money. Mm-hmm. It's not as an investment, right? Because we don't, most people don't understand the way banks work. So, okay, right. well, just deposit my money. And, and the deposit is corresponds to what in the Arabic language is called al wadi'ah. So what do you, let's say, for instance, I come to you and I leave with you my car. I say, I'm going to travel for a few days. I'm going to leave my car with you. That's a wadiyah. Now, the rules of wadiyah and fiqh are like this. You are responsible for looking after my car, but you can utilize it, one, two, as long as you don't cause damage to it, mm-hmm. right, on purpose. I mean, of course, something happens like a natural, like there's a hurricane or some other car that crashes into it and just parked there. You know, you're not here responsible for it, you know. But if you go out and utilize it and you're reckless, then you would have to pay me back, pay me for the damages. You know? But as long as you don't do anything like that, you can continue to use the things I leave with you. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, when you think about banking, when I put my money there, if we were to say, okay, well, this cash is similar to some other good that I might leave with you, then the bank should have the ability to utilize it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, so that in itself, it has to be worked out begin with okay is that a legitimate utilization of my money right mm-hmm. when they're supposed to simply be protecting it now now so this is normal banking but then we have investment banking so investment banking i i'm not aware of any scholars who say that investment banking is haram right? mm-hmm. in other words you know when you go to that bank you put your money in that bank that they're going to take your money and invest it in something with the promise of a certain percentage of return they say, well, they say the difference between this and normal banking is that an investment banking, an investment banking, it's an enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, that you know, it's like you're a, you're a partial owner of that in- enterprise that by placing your money in, in that, you know, you have stock, I guess you would say, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, and so for that reason, you have the right to earn profit on the money you invested because they're gonna take that investment, invest it in something, you know, that's going to multiply, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the difference between that and normal banking is that. The people who put their money in the banks, they don't know, you know, that this is what the banks are doing. That they're taking money, utilizing it, and doing, and making more and more cash off of it, right, for themselves and for other people, mm-hmm. right. So the question becomes: Okay, can I consider that interest that's paid to me uh, by the conventional bank for leaving my money in the account profit, mm-hmm. right? And again, this is where it becomes confusing, right? You know, so right. so it's like, okay, well, so Tantawi. Kentawi, you know, even though there's some some problem with his some inconsistency with his own history, because he at one time he was forbidding it, he considered it to be haram, but then he had gave a photo when he when he became Sheikh al-Azhar, mm-hmm. when you know, and he actually said it was halal, right? For you to take that the fatih that we call it in Arabic, right? So which is the interest, right? So so everyone would agree, let's say, for instance, that let's say a uh, you were to come to me and you're interested in starting a business. I'm running the bank, and you want to start a business. You want to borrow from the bank five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. The bank says to you, "Hey, well, okay, yeah, I'll lend it to you, with the condition you pay me back five percent, right, on the amount that I gave to you." Um, the ulama generally would say, "As haram," mm-hmm. but they say, "Well, this is a loan, right?" And everyone agrees that charging more money for more money is haram. Mm-hmm. But then, but there is somewhat of a gray area here, in my opinion, because if we were to if we were to actually alter the state of that agreement and say that the bank, instead of the bank saying, "Give me a percentage of what I gave to you," the bank says, "Hey, well, okay, I'll give you the money, but I want to be your partner." Mm. Right? Then now everyone would agree. Right? Right. Yeah. So, so in other words, you understand? Know I'm saying I'm just I'm not saying I'm not trying to validate it. But I'm just trying to just help you know people understand that it's not as easy. It's not a black or white issue, right? You know, and uh, you know, and I don't know what to do about it or how long it would take for us to kind of really understand the importance of having a stable monetary system because there are certain dangers here because even whether you consider it halal haram, our current system 
it's not good. It's not a good system. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, there, there's. I think you you highlighted really good issue. I mean, it's not just just because you you know, it, in in a perfect world, just because you leave your money in a bank, that doesn't necessarily make it haram. But you know the, you know, like 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 you said, the current system that we have set up, the nature of it works by fractional reserves, so that you know right. you're not. The money that you have isn't actually there. It's you basically have entered into a contract, and it's basically a security, and it's not even it's not even money at that point. And mm-hmm. you know, with, with the advent of COVID and the lockdowns, we, we don't even have fractional reserve banking. It's 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 right. zero. There's zero fractional yeah. reserve. This, yes, yeah. I mean, makes it makes it quite complicated. And you know, you can't. You know, I I do think that there's a lot to be said for that hadith concerning you know gold, silver, rice, barley, dates. And, and wheat and you know i think there's different angles you can approach it right like you know you said that you could try to approach it from like measuring it in weight but because like today the nature of our money is digital you can't really measure it by weight so you know that doesn't necessarily apply but i think i think you know you can't we can't just take a literalist approach and just say like oh we can't we can't apply riba on these things because they don't meet these six criteria or whatever but i, I do think they highlight that you know it's interesting these six commodities kept being repeated as 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 money because I don't I'm not seeing that like you know the, the scholars for one I'm, I'm not going to make a blanket statement here but like this some of the scholars don't understand how our money works and how banking works and if yeah, it, I think, I think a lot yeah, of my yeah. scholars don't understand it yeah I think that that kind of leads to a lot of misunderstanding about how how riba works within within the current system because you know even even that money itself is a riba based contract like if you ever pull out a dollar bill i mean what what does it say on there it says federal reserve note like okay what's that note being backed up by so like you kind of like untangle that and you find out that like the base of the monetary system are just us treasuries and those are just riba based products so like the thing that backs up the money is just riba itself and yeah, you know yeah. we're we're trying to come up with these rulings on this money that was born out of riba and you know, if you're trying to answer the question of whether this certain contract is riba or not, like you have to kind of like just step back from it and just say, wait a minute, the thing we're talking about here is just a riba-based product. So like you know, the, a lot of the it kind of um, it kind of it kind of distorts a lot of a lot a lot of opinions. And it's you know, I, I don't I don't blame I don't blame I don't completely blame the scholars on this because it's 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 something that's been in the making for for many decades. You know, it's not something that like yeah. fraction of reserve banking just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think I think what it is 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 so much of of just simply having a lot of of accommodation. Right? In other words, a failure to imagine a different world, right, and a different type of system. You know, where where fundamentally, what I mean by that is that. Let's say, for instance, the Islamic finance, Sharia compliant sector, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a there's, there's not really a lot of emphasis on the importance of avoiding debt, for instance. There's not enough emphasis on the fact that uh, that the actual money itself, right? as, you, as you highlight here, that the money itself is very problematic. You know, like you said, it's, it, used to, it used to be a, a time when, and a lot of people still think that the dollar is backed by gold. I, I guess I get, it surprises me. Many people I talk to, I'll come across young people and they think, oh, it's, it's backed by, no, it's not backed by gold. Yeah. It hasn't been backed by gold for some time now. Right? And the Nixon, Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. I mean, but, you know, there was 1933, you know, this thing, you know, the stuff, you know, with Roosevelt, he, he confiscated. The gold, anything that was more than worth more than a hundred dollars, you know, that they they took it from everyone, and the government monopolized all the gold after that. But then, nineteen seventy one, they decided, okay, we're going to come off the gold standard for a a while, but it became permanent, you know. And in the process, they've been able to continue to print more and more money, to the extent that it has ex- expanded the, the the debt itself, right, and has reduced the buying power. Of, of, of our money at the same time. And then we have these every seven or 10 years, there's another crash, stock market crash and all these things. There's a, and, and there's so much credit. That's the other part too. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you ever read the book, uh, House of Debt by, uh, by, by Amir Sufi and uh, I think it's Atif Mian, right? So yeah. House of Debt. And then just, just this one particular sentence in one of the chapters where they make the point to say that the system under which we live actually is not capitalist system is what they call creditism. They call it creditism, you know, and so that in itself 
we celebrate that we are no longer slaves, for instance. Right? Mm -hmm. The slavery is over, right? And we have to remember that slavery wasn't only about physical bondage. In the past, you could become a slave through kidnap, through debt slavery as well. You owe people debts. You know, you become someone's slave, like indentured servitude. Sometimes it's like that too. You know, become a debt slave or subsistent slavery. Right? Mm -hmm. We live in a time of neo-slavery when it comes to money. And look at what happened when COVID. Look at this. People were threatened. They were told, if you don't get this jab, you, you're gonna, we're going to fire you. You're going to lose your job. Now, if you're an individual who just really, you just like iron, you know, sort of will, right? You can take that. But when you got someone, imagine someone, you got a 30-year mortgage. You have like two car, note, car notes. You have student loan debt. You have massive credit card debt. You're probably sent your children to school recently to college and you're paying help to pay their college tuition right and you think you own that you think you're wealthy and rich but you all you have is a, a bunch of debt right and that's besides the, the the proper characterization of the money itself right you know mm -hmm. but but just think about that it's like well you're now in a situation that if a crisis were to happen that whoever is at the top right of the food chain mm -hmm. can say to you hey you better do this for me or else Right. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened during COVID. And I mean, what, what showed it, it revealed to us, you know, the, the problem, the, the flimsiness of this particular system. Right. You know, and so it's not a good thing. So on one hand, of course, uh, as I mentioned in, in the in the in the forward, is that yeah, on one hand, the prophet, he discouraged begging, but he also discouraged people from incurring a lot of debt. Right. Yeah. He he discouraged Reba, but he, he discouraged people from encouraging a lot of debt. Right. Yeah, encourage goodwill towards people, the beggars and you know poor people, but he discouraged begging at the same time, right? And so, so it's, there's an attempt to bring this balance in society and human behavior. So, I do think that that the community really, really requires uh, a, a a fresh perspective on the the monetary system, the financial system, and the precariousness of it, and also the fact that there's. Revolution happening right now. There's a revolution in those sectors right now. And I think that most people don't detect it at all. You know, yeah. I mean, by end of this year, by next, I mean, you know, we talk about CBDCs and all these other things. You know, we talked about this a little, a little bit yeah. before, but yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's such a daunting task to try to reach, right? Yeah. To make them understand just the, the precarious situation that the world finds itself in. And, and you know, you also mentioned in your foreword there was this scholar that tried to get us, you know, he, he saw the, the current problems of the fiat system and, and he decided that, all right, that means we all need to go back on a gold standard and completely completely get off of this riba based system. So, you know, he, he can't remember the scholar's name. And I'm, I've read some of the works from one of his students, Omar Vadilo, where he actually mm -hmm. issued a fatwa on fiat money. And, you know, I, I look up to these guys because like they they are i think they're very bold in like the all right like yeah. they understand the problems of the monetary systems that means we need to go to a gold standard but then it turns out that like oh man this this gold standard isn't really very viable because people don't want to transact in it and you know in order to even get into a gold standard you still have to deal a lot with the fiat current with the fiat system that's based on riba and I, I agree that I think, you know, there needs to be like a fresh perspective of looking at not just on money, but also money production. I've, I've read this book. And I'll, I'll send you a link to this book called The Ethics of Money Production. And it's, it's written from a Christian perspective. But, you know, the author, one of the points that he makes is that there's a lot of these rulings, at least in Christianity, where, you know, these these priests and saints will, you know, lament about people accumulating too much wealth or whatever. But they never, ever mention about the people that make money. So like, you know, there's, it's like any, any kind of, uh, you know, when, when we try to approach the topic of money, it's not just the people that are transacting in money, but there's also mm -hmm. a class of people that are in charge of producing money. And I think yeah. this, this, this is a topic that I think gets neglected a lot in Islamic economics because yeah. they just kind of assume that like, oh, well, in Islamic economics, you just have a central bank and they just do the same thing that they're doing right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I mean. And they're talking about, okay, purpose of accommodation is just say, hey, well, you know, it's working, you know, they're, they're more advanced than we are technologically, civilizationally, you know, there's only so much we can do to, to, to change that. And, and Sheikh Abdul Qadir Sufi, Rahimahullah, and the Murabitun movement, 
they were correct. They were right, right, mm -hmm. about their action. But I think that what they failed to do is that they failed to offer an articulation of their views in such a way that was simple and easy enough, right, for most Muslims to really understand the dangers that we that we see, that when more and more we started to see now. Because I was, myself, even back when I first encountered some of their followers, I was like, I'll just put off. And I said, well, okay, I'm not really getting it, right? And, uh, you know, so, so, but, but fundamentally they, they were correct. And so now we see the birth of like, of course you're a Bitcoiner, right? So, yeah. so the birth of Bitcoin, right? And, and I, I actually was skeptical, skeptical about Bitcoin too. And I mentioned to you before, like one of our students, I think back in 2013, 2014, wrote his thesis on Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I read it and you know, all these parts of it, not completely, you know, but I didn't really take it seriously at the time. And I said, well, Bitcoin's not going to go anywhere. The government's never going to allow something alternative economic system to develop. And I think I had good reason to feel that way, mm -hmm. based upon what I've seen happen over the years with the American Empire and their, you know, the destruction of certain countries and things like that. And then we see Gaddafi, you know, yes. the, it, was, it was a conspiracy theory at one time that Gaddafi, he was trying to revert to a, a gold-based system. And that was the main reason why they did that. You know, but nowadays this is no longer conspiracy theory. They actually, yes. It's like mainstream, right? So okay, now it makes sense. He was he was talking at the same time. What's happening is now is that the entire world has decided now we're we're gonna move to a new system, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, money, I mean, options like Bitcoin are very promising in that uh, that they remind us that you don't need the government's authority. Uh, to determine like what, what is actually a valid medium of exchange, right? right? Because you're talking about the international community of people utilizing that change. I'm going to sell you a pizza, but you know, they exchange in Bitcoin, right? So, so well, I don't need dollars anymore. I don't, I don't need euro anymore. I don't, I don't need this, right? Yeah. And that is and that itself makes it threatening, and that's one of the main reasons we know like why they want the CBDCs to yeah. compute and try to eventually props and go try to outlaw all the others because it's not it's not centralized like they want it to be. Yeah, this is a fear that I also have. I mean, I we know CBDCs are coming. I mean, you know, I make I make dua like they, they are not coming, but they they are, and I feel like that Muslims are unfortunately are going to be one of the first ones that are just going to like take that in and like, oh, CBDCs, this is going to be a great alternative and it's going to save us from inflation and all of these other catastrophes that we have. And it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate how I think just the Muslim Ummah in general, how, you know, a lot of a lot of these Islamic governments seem to be heading in that direction where they would rather implement a CBDC rather than, I guess, relinquish control of their money and just just allow the free market to pick whatever money they want. And you know, we'll we'll see we'll see how this turns out in yeah, inshallah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but again, they they themselves they're slaves of the West. They've been slaves of the West for such a long time, and and also it's very like I mean, if I was like an autocrat, I would love this. Like this is perfect. Right? You understand? Because if I'm able to control all the money, right, and then decide who gets it, who doesn't get get it, who what you can buy with it, what you can't buy with it, you know, and then and if you don't listen to me, you know. Yeah, just they they could they could they, they could just shut you off completely. They can force you into transactions that you don't. They can force you into riba-based transactions, and you'd have no say in it. There's there's also that issue. So so I, I guess we're we're coming up to time, but I did want to ask you one last question before I let you go. So what what do you think in in your opinion? What do you think Muslims get wrong about Islamic economics, or what do you think Islamic economists or even scholars get wrong about Islamic economics in general? Well, I mean, when we think about the general population, because that seemed like a, a, um, a two-part question, right? You know, one related to Muslims in general, then others, Muslim scholars. Mm -hmm. I think with regard to the general population, there are two perspectives. One perspective is that uh, that that there is that Islam has nothing to say about material issues, right? Matters of finance and wealth and things like that. And, and I've encountered this in the past, where a very wealthy Muslim man that I know. That opened up. Um, I, don't, I don't want to say what he opened up, you know, because he probably. I don't think he'll hear this 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 podcast, but maybe you never know, you know. But he opened up something, some type of establishment was was haram, and and I told him, I said, you know, you can't you can't do that, you know, that that's you can't. You know, he said to me, he said, you know, that this is just business, it had nothing to do with Islam. In other words, this attitude that a lot of Muslims or wealthy Muslims have this attitude that. Islam has nothing to say about our financial transactions. 
Um, on the other hand, you have this is probably much more common the viewpoint that uh, that Islam does have something something to say about it, but that but also that Islam has its own sort of um, macroeconomic theory, right? Mm. In the same fashion that that the West may have with respect to communism or capitalism, things like that, right? Uh, and and of course there hasn't been an articulation of that by our predecessors, right? Going way back to the time of the Prophet or the Sabian or Sahaba, right? You know, but definitely Islam has a lot to say about what is considered to be ethical in this particular realm, right? In the realm of business transactions. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things that Muslims can still do if you start your own business that make them more Sharia compliant, even under Western governments according to their own rules, right? You know, so I mean, so one thing would be just things related to like competition, right? That you don't undermine your under, your, your brother's business. Right? You're selling the same thing, but then you go and you start to attack your brother. Yeah, those that's not Islamic. Right? Mm-hmm. You do so. You know, to outsell, to sell over your brother's sell, to purchase against your brother's purchase. There are things there, matters related to fraud, want to avoid those. So there's a lot of things you do you can do to Islamicize your own business efforts. The scholars, I think that um, it's not so much that they get things wrong when they perhaps think about or speak about what we call Islamic economics. But most, I think that the particular area where most scholars, at least in my experience, uh, they have a deficiency in is with respect to understanding just the nature of money, at least today's money, and how the banking system works, and 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 how uh, that makes uh, the world much less stable for not seeking some type of alternative, supporting an alternative of what we already have, right? you know, and um, so. So that's why I would say, in short, okay, nothing else is coming to my mind at the moment. No, that, that that's great. Because to be honest, I mean, even if you were to ask me that question, I, I would probably say that the nature of money, I think, is probably a big one. And I think that would maybe be the, the most correct answer to that question, actually. But it's really great to get your perspective on that. Th- yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Where where, where can people find you on, online? Right. Yeah. Um, I, uh, my, of course, Zaytuna College. I work at Zaytuna College. In Berkeley, California, I have a, a another an independent effort called Lampos Education Initiative. You can find some of my articles and other uh, people's efforts being promoted on our website, lampostedu.org. But I also have my own independent website too, benhamidali.com, where a lot of my articles and and some of my videos are posted as well. Right, so uh, okay. please uh, support us. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.